If it wasn't for the fact that I'm staunchly reformed, I'd say we don't have to preach, but we do. Because as much fun as that was, it wasn't preaching. Um, Wonderful. Okay, let's just start with scripture. Not just. That's a silly word. Let's stop saying, Lord, I just pray. Just is a terrible word. Well, you know, Barry, uh, J.M. Barry, who wrote Peter Pan, said, just is a candle snuffing word. And it is. Not just begin with the word of God. Let's read it. It's Genesis 15, verses 1 right through to 18. After these things, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision. Fear not, Abram, I am your shield. Your reward shall be very great. But Abram said, O Lord God, what will you give me? For I continue childless, and the heir of my house is Eliezer of Damascus. And Abram said, Behold, you have given me no offspring, and a member of my household will be my heir. And behold, the word of the Lord came to him. This man shall not be your heir. Your very own son shall be your heir. And he brought him outside and said, Look toward heaven and number the stars, if you are able to number them. Then he said to him, So shall your offspring be. And he believed the Lord, and, it count, and he counted it to him as righteousness. And he said to him, I am the Lord, your God, sorry, the Lord who brought you out from Ur of the Chaldeans to give you this land to possess. But he said, O Lord, how am I to know that I shall possess it? He said to him, Bring me a heifer, three years old, a female goat, three years old, a ram, three years old, a turtle dove, and a young pigeon. And he brought him all these, he cut them in half, and laid them half over against the other. But he did not cut the birds in half. And when the birds of prey came down on the carcasses, Abram drove them away. As the sun was going down, a deep sleep fell on Abram, and behold, dreadful and great darkness fell upon him. Then the Lord said to Abram, Know for certain that your offspring will be sojourners in the the land that is not theirs and will be servants there, and they will be afflicted for 400 years. But I will bring judgment on the nation that they serve, and afterward they shall come out with great possessions. As for you, you shall go to your fathers in peace. You shall be buried in a good old age, and they shall come back here in the fourth generation, for the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet complete." When the sun had gone down and it was dark, behold, a smoking fire pot and a flaming torch passed between these pieces. On that day, the Lord made a covenant with Abram. So before we start, I'm actually going to, um, you're going to have to reserve judgment for, on me for just a minute. Because I'm going to give all the women in the room some advice. Okay? So don't judge it right away. Wait until I'm done. Just three pieces. I could have do more. I'm just going to choose three. This is how you should uh, uh, be a wife to your husbands, okay? Over the cooler months of the year, you should prepare and light a fire for him to unwind by. Your husband will feel he has reached the haven of rest and order, and he will give you a lift too. After all, catering for his his comfort will provide you with immense personal satisfaction. Hold on. (laughs) Piece of advice number two. Arrange his pillow and offer to take off his shoes. Speak in a low and soothing and pleasant voice. That's point two. This is the sermon, no. And the last part, this this one, don't throw anything. Um, Don't ask him questions about his actions or question his judgment or integrity. Remember, he is the master of the house and as such will always exercise his will with fairness and truthfulness. You have no right to question him. Now, You see, it's, it's laughable, and I had to warn you, otherwise you would have stopped listening immediately. Um, but 
What would it help you if you knew that that was chosen, those three out of 17 tips for housewives that was published in a 1955 version of Housekeeping Monthly? It's called The Good Housewife's Guide. So, you see, that helps, right? So you know it was a different time, different age. So, you see, the context kind of helps you understand the, the things that sound ridiculous. And when you're reading the Old Testament, anytime, you must know the context. Because if you don't, it's just going to sound weird if you're a Christian. And if you're an unbeliever, it's going to sound barbaric, uh, bloody, and just primitive. It's going to be like, why would God ask him to cut things up? Like, what's he doing to Abram here? So what we have to do when you're doing that is um, also something Augustine told us about. See, Augustine said, the Old Testament is like a beautifully furnished room, but it's poorly lit. And you must let the light of the New Testament into it to be able to see all the wonderful things that are around in that wonderful book, in those books of the Old Testament. So that's what we're going to do today. Okay? We're going to look back at this, this scripture. First, we're going to look at it the way it is. Just going to hammer it and really understand what's going on here. And then we are going to let some light in from the New Testament because that helps. And I've used this example before. If you've ever seen the movie The Sixth Sense, have you ever seen that? You see, at the, uh, spoiler alert, at the end, it turns out Bruce Willis is dead. He's a ghost. But the whole movie, you don't know that. So at the end, when the big twist comes, you then look back at the rest of the story and say, oh, yeah, that's why this happened. And because you let the light in of the end, you can then see the rest of the story in, in its proper context. Okay? So we're going to do that today with this, and we're going to find three very simple things. We're going to see Abram's doubt, God's assurance, and our benefit. Okay? Doubt, assurance, and benefit. So let's jump right into Abram's doubt. So first we have to understand, and Connie up here mentioned something very, uh, very astute about our culture, where we have come to a place where we don't even, we don't just, we're not just okay with doubting things. We actually make it the height of achievement. The goal of a person once upon a time was to seek truth. Now it's, hey, you know what? Don't, don't, don't plant your flag in anything at all because there's no real truth. Just kind of sit back and doubt everything, question everything. In fact, Einstein, who generally you would assume is a pretty bright guy, made a comment about how he, he rejected the Bible. He said, when I was old enough to realize that these stories couldn't possibly be true, he said, I began to realize I had to question everything. Okay, that was a statement, question everything. You've probably heard people say that. But interesting, Einstein doesn't question his logic to question that. So he questions everything except for his ability to know. And this doubt, this idea of doubt is not, is not new. It started way back, you know, a guy named Descartes, I won't bore you with the enlightenment, but he comes and he starts to say, you know what? We have always assumed everything on authority. You've assumed you should behave a certain way and get married before you have children and just live like this because you've been told it by previous people and churches and so on. But from now on, question it. No authority anymore, just question everything. And then that philosophical idea gets mixed in, in the Victorian years, in the 19th century, when Darwin comes and all these scientific uh, advances. So now we have the philosophical question everything. Don't trust your, your parents and your teachers and your pastors. But then we have the science that says, hold on, we've got to rethink things here. You know, there's questions about the creation story. There's questions about these things. And that evolves to the point where now 
you have somebody like Oprah, who is probably one of the most famous people in the world, and what does she stand for? Nothing. Because she's always standing in the middle saying, oh, everybody's right, aren't they? Everybody's right. And if you are so certain Christianity is right, you're dangerous. Doubt is the way to be. Stay in the middle. Everybody, everything's all right. It's relative. And that's where the culture has gotten now. And where this, this, the reason I'm talking about that here is Abram doubts God. He doubts God in, well, remarkably, in two key spots here. And you would think that me as a pastor, I would come and say to you, the key is not to doubt. But I'm not going to say that. You see, because God is not two-dimensional. You know, kids, when kids tell you a story, it's very simple. There's a good guy and a bad guy. That's it. There's no gray areas. But God doesn't come and say, doubt is bad. He actually comes and meets Abram in a very different place. So he, he looks at things differently. So let's look at the actual text. Notice one thing. This should put you at ease. Abram, in verse 2, doubts right away. God, you said you'd give me a child, but you haven't. What's going on? Doubts one. Then he hears God's explanation. Then we're told, so he believes God, and it's credit to him as righteousness. So, okay, good. Abram went from disbelief, unbelief, to belief. But then two verses later, he says, but how am I going to know that I'm going to have this land you told me about? So here we have a human being who doubts God, believes God, and then doubts him right afterwards again. So you know where this is a comfort for you and I? Is you as a Christian are allowed to doubt God at times. Okay? I'm giving you that permission, but let me qualify this. Because God all through, not just here, the Psalms, Job. You see, when Job, and if you're in the Bible school, you've heard some of this from last week when we talked about Job. Job rants and raves about God, but then at the end, in chapter 42, God says, Job has spoken right of me. What? Job did nothing but rant and rave about God and doubt everything about him. And God says, I'm comfortable with you wrestling with these things. Because when tragedy strikes, you're not me. You're not God. So you're going to struggle with these things. It's okay. But where it's different is God says doubt is not a destination. God isn't like Oprah that says, stay a doubter. Stay there. Never feel firm about anything. God says, no, it's okay to doubt. But I'm going to do everything, and I have done everything I can to move you from doubt to certainty. Okay? And that's, so for us as Christians, that should be very freeing, okay? There's moments I know, don't pretend, you all doubt God at times. I know it, and that's, that's, God understands that, believe it or not. But even more, let's think about us as a church. As a church, what that means is if God is comfortable with doubt, shouldn't you be? So when people come in the building and are saying, I'm going to come to your churches, I'm going to come to your home group, I'm going to hang out with you in your community, but... I don't know about this whole God thing. Not only should you be welcoming those people, but you should be getting ready for them. We should be expecting them to come and preparing for those doubters to come so that you're always thinking about how would I explain this? How would I share my faith with this person? Because that's the point. So the Christian is comforted. The church has something. And if you're a skeptic here or listening, you can understand this. Your threats and your questions don't threaten God. He's okay with it. If you think you're getting, you know, you're jabbing one at the church by making a, a snide comment, you're not. God's comfortable with that. He's had it before. But also, you can also think, he doesn't throw me aside just because I'm, I'm doubting. He's actually walking with you, and we're going to see that in the second spot. But before we move into the first one, there's something more here about this Abram's doubt I want to talk about. 
Um, as you encounter doubt, which you no doubt will, no doubt will, um, there's two ways to doubt. You can doubt backwards or doubt forward. See, doubting backwards is like this. If you're a Christian, doubting backwards is accepting pat answers, the simple answers. So if, you know, it's always easy when somebody else is struggling for you to make those snide comments like, oh, just trust the Lord. He has a plan. You know, it's okay. It's not, you know. Jesus, when he's on the cross, doesn't say, hey, everything's okay. He's got a plan. He screams. He deals with it. And now, so Christians sometimes accept those pat answers and say, God has a plan. God has a plan. And because they never delve deeply into those questions about suffering and God's sovereignty and why God would allow Job, Satan, to test Job. Why don't you ask those questions? Because if you don't, when suffering comes, you won't be ready for it, maybe. And this is why, certainly on, as a pastoral team, we see some people who get rocked by life, and you, they, they haven't dug, dug, uh, planted roots deep in, because they haven't taken it deeply. They've, their doubts, when they come, they just, they just uh, smooth over their doubts with a pat answer. Oh, God's sovereign. He knows what he's doing. Okay? So they're not ready. And if you're a skeptic, the problem is this. If you accept doubt backwards, is you'll never challenge your own ideas. You'll come to God and you'll think, well, if God was real, there'd be no suffering. And you don't push that question to its logical end. And as a result, what are you? You're a person who's never, never really gotten the question. You're intellectually lazy. You've not really asked the question. And I speak that from a person who did it for many years. Okay? And the best way, of course, is to doubt forward. So you do what Abram does, which is Abram and Job and David, these guys in the Old Testament, they don't just accept pat answers. They keep pushing and saying, why? Why is this happening? I lo- you got to love Job. I'm perfect. I'm blameless. Why is this happening? You know, God somehow is okay with that response from Job. He understands it. But Job pushes and says, no, I can't accept suffering. So if suffering was like this, then why am I suffering? It's supposed to be good people don't suffer, isn't it? And Abram here keeps pushing, pushing. God, how do I know? How do I know for sure? How do I know for sure? And he's doubting, but he's looking for answers, okay? That's the best way to do it. So in this economy of God, you can doubt, but don't stay there. God has no interest in keeping you there because he's made a way for you to not have to doubt. That's point one. Point two is God's assurance. Now, what does God do in response to Abram? Um, what I love is Abram, or God doesn't expect you to accept pat answers and leap into faith. You know this idea of you have to have a, it's a blind leap into faith? God does not ever say, you know, like I do. If my children don't listen, what's the simplest thing I do to them? You know, eat your carrots. Why? You know what I say? Because I said so. Eat the darn carrots. Um, God never says that. Very rarely. Well, he doesn't. Okay? He never says it. And this is why. Because he likes you. In fact, he loves you. So he's willing to work it out. Now, let me give you an example of Abram here. So Abram has two big problems he's doubting, he's wrestling with. First, he doubts God. Then he doubts himself. So in verse 2, he's struggling with, I don't have a child. God, you said you'd give me a child. I don't have one. When are you going to get it right? Okay? So he doubts, will God do what he says? And then later on, in in verse 8... Uh, in verse 7, God says, hey, I'm the one who brought you up out of your home to give you this land. And Abram says, how will I know I'm going to get that land? See, because now Abram isn't just doubting God. He's saying, I don't know if I'm the guy you think I am. I don't think I'm the one who can actually take this land like you said. 
So Abram is not just doubting God, he's doubting himself. He's a mess of doubt, as you and I are. And God responds with this strange ritual of saying, get me some animals and chop them up. Okay? And I'm going to explain what all that means. And basically what he's doing is he's creating a covenant. God wants Abram to be so certain that he is going, that God will be the God he says he is, that he, he, he cuts a covenant with him. Okay? He literally makes a covenant. Now, the reason it sounds barbaric is because today, if you're going to make a covenant with uh, Rogers for your cell phone plan, um, you have a piece of paper. And it says, I sign to pay X amount of dollars a month, plus everything you'll add on without me knowing about. Um, sorry, I had to throw that in there. <laughs> so I'm going to pay X amount of dollars every single month. And in return, you are going to give me cell phone service. And if I fail to pay you, you may cut off that service. If you fail to give me this uh, service, I have no recourse at all. Um, <laughs> but you see, it's a covenant. Then you sign, right? Um, now that's a modern covenant. You sign, and there's always expectations and consequences. This is what I'm going to do, and if I don't, this is what's going to happen. Now in the ancient world, they didn't have paper like this. So they said, instead of getting out the legal pad, they said, get some animals. And what God does, he says, get this, a ram and a heifer and a goat, all three years old, chop them in half, okay? And you set, you set them on either side, so one half here, one half here, and make an aisle, okay? Right down the middle. You're one half of the goats, you're the other half. How's that? Um, and put the pigeon and, and the turtle dove there as well. He says, this is what we're going to do. This is the way this was done. A king, when he defeated a nation or two people were going to enter a covenant, what would happen was you'd do this, you'd state the covenant terms, if you do, you know, I've dominated your country. If you don't pay me X amount of dollars every week, every month in, in tribute, this will happen, and so on. And then both parties will walk through the center, okay? And that, what it means is if I fail to live up to the, the, the obligations of this covenant, let this happen to me. Let me be chopped into bits, okay? It's very vivid. You can look at Jeremiah 34 for an example of that if you want. So this is what a covenant is. Now, here is the problem with this um, for Abram. If Abram is already doubting himself, let's say, let's say he trusts God at this point. Let's just talk about his self-doubt. If Abram doubts that he can be the guy God says he will be, then how does saying, okay, Abram, and if you don't become the guy I say, you're going to get cut into bits. How does that ease Abram? Have you thought about that? This covenant is saying if it fails to happen, chopped into bits. And Abram is thinking, you know, I already had some performance anxiety here beforehand when I didn't know the consequences. I thought I just wouldn't get the real estate. But now, something, I'm going to be killed if I don't? So how is that comforting? Okay? And the reason it's comforting is in verse 18, 17, 18. But let's, let's do that. Verse 17 is this, when the sun had gone down and it was dark, behold, a smoking fire pot and a flaming torch passed between the pieces on that day, the Lord made a covenant with Abram. Now, remember what I said. Normally in a covenant, what would happen is both parties would walk through. In this case, only God walks through. So first of all, God walks through, which is audacious because if a king is in there with a, uh, you know, a peasant, why would the king have any obligations on himself? It's usually, you're going to be the, the good subject and you're going to walk through or else. But in this case, God walks through, and he says, Abram, if I fail to be the God I say I will be, let me be torn to pieces. Let me be cut off. 
Okay? And then even more, look at verse 18. On that day, the Lord made a covenant with Abram. Notice it doesn't say Abram made a covenant with God. Only God makes the covenant here. Abram, when God walks through, he's not just saying, hey, Abram, I'm going to be the guy I said, so you can stop doubting. He says, Abram, if you turn out to not be the guy I think you are, I'll be killed. So God is taking all of the doubts on himself and saying, I'm so confident I'm going to make this plan I have for you come to fruition that I'm taking all the risk. I'm giving you a mortgage. You don't have to pay it back. I'm just giving you what you want. If you fail to pay it, I'll pay it. You see, this is remarkable. And it's really the only possible way that Abram's doubts could have been dealt with properly. Abram is racked with doubt. And if any other option, what if Abram did have to walk through? Wouldn't help his doubt because he's still worried about himself. God says, remarkably, in verse 13, Abram, know for certain that this will happen. That's not a trick of the English. That's there in the Hebrew. Know for certain God is not interested in you having doubt forever. You can doubt God. He understands. In fact, look at how he responds to Abram. He doesn't yell and get frustrated with God or or with Abram. Instead, he keeps answering it. First, he says it verbally. Then he takes him outside and counts the stars. Then he says, okay, let me show you more visibly. And he actually walks amongst Abram. He's doing everything he can to smack the doubt out of Abram in, in a gentle way. Okay? So he does everything to assure Abram. That's point two. I know we were tight for time, so I'm going to be quick. Now, point three, how does this benefit us? Here's where we let the light of the New Testament in, okay? So if we turn to Hebrews 6, see, because the New Testament often says things that are hard to understand, and most people just read, keep reading. They don't bother to understand what they mean because they refer to the Old Testament, and you're not very comfortable. You know, the Old Testament's that crazy uncle in your family that is a little weird. Uh, you don't want to talk to him too much because he's embarrassing, and he says things that are awkward. So you, don't, you avoid the Old Testament generally. But when you look at Hebrews 6, it's, a, it's a six or seven verses, but let me read it to you because he's speaking directly about what I just read in Genesis 15. For when God made a promise to Abraham, since he had no one, no one greater by whom to swear, he swore by himself, saying, Surely I will bless you and multiply you. And thus Abraham, having patiently waited, obtained the promise. For people swear by something greater than themselves, and in their disputes an, excuse me, in their disputes an oath is final for confirmation. So when God desired to show more convincingly to the heirs of the promise the unchangeable character of his purpose, he guaranteed it with an oath. Okay, now I'm jump to nineteen. Now we have this as a sure and steadfast anchor of the soul, a hope that enters into the, into the inner place behind the curtain where Jesus has gone as forerunner on our behalf, having become high priest forever. Now, what he's saying is this. Abram was doubting. So God swears and gives him an oath. But then the writer of Hebrews goes on to say, there was this oath that was given, this promise, but now we have this anchor. So he, he's actually saying It's different now. The Old Testament, you see, Abram had a promise, this oath he was given. But now we have an anchor. Let me give you an example of what might be the difference. There's so many ways we could go with this, but let's think of one. Let's imagine you heard that uh, a long-distant relative passed away, and they left you a fortune. Now, the problem is the fortune is only set to come in when you hit a certain age. Let's say you're a kid, you're younger, you get it when you're 25, you know, the age of maturity. Then you have the promise of that money, and it's, it's as good as gold, like it's certain, because it's legal, it's gonna come. 
The problem is, although you can rejoice and start planning and getting excited, you may have many years before you actually get that promise in your hand. And although it's very good, it's certain it's going to happen, and you can, you can plan on it coming, you don't actually have it yet. But once you hit 25, or whatever that age is, and you've got the fortune in your pockets, isn't that a different kind of rejoicing? Like, it's no less different because you still have it. It was no more certain just because you have it in your pocket because it was always going to come. But because you now have it, it's a different sort of rejoicing. And this is what Abram, Hebrews, is trying to say. He's making it sound basically like Abe had a very good thing. This oath is very good and it was certain. But you, you and I, have something better. Now, why is it? Let's think about this. Why would God give Abram something and then we have something different? What's the difference? And the answer is to why one gets an oath and one gets an anchor. Think about an anchor, okay? Holds you firm, assuming you let it sink in deep into the ground anyway. Now, here's the answer, and this gets us back to Genesis 15 where we were just reading, because the hint is already in that scripture. It already tells you in there why you got something better, but it only hints at it. You see, because if Augustine is right, the Old Testament is good. It's per- it points everything perfectly to Christ, but it does it through shadows, through innuendo, through images. So it's sometimes hard to see until you know the end, and then you can see him all over. So if you go to verse 12, okay? So Abram has now cut everything into bits, and he's, this is what happens. As the sun was going down, a deep sleep fell on Abram, and behold, a dreadful and great darkness fell on him. End of story. Okay. Now, this, when it refers to deep sleep, by the way, it's the same deep sleep Adam went into in Genesis when Eve is yanked out of his rib. Same, same idea. So God puts him into a deep sleep. And why does he do that? Well, this is why. Everywhere in the Bible, when people meet God, what happens? They fall on their face and they're terrified. They're broken. Think of Isaiah 6. He sees God and says, immediately, by the way, is aware that he is a sinner and that people around him are sinners. I am a man of unclean lips, among a people of unclean lips. And he falls down and he's terrified. When in Luke 5, 8, Peter finally, you know, remember they're fishing and Jesus astonishes them with fish. Peter, immediately aware that this is not just a normal guy, says, Lord, get away from me, a sinner, right? Immediately he is broken by meeting God. Abram, however, is put to sleep. See, God's thinking, I'm going to come and I'm going to pass in his presence. But he can't see me. Because Abram, as much as we hold him up as a model of faith, was a terrible sinner. The first story we hear about Abram after he's called from God, by the way, is when he tells his wife to basically submit to being a prostitute for the king of Egypt uh, so that he can stay alive. So Abram is not a wonderful human being. This is a guy, just a person. So God knows if I show up and he sees me, he's finished. Okay? But when we fast forward and let a little bit more light in for the New Testament, we get to Mark 15, 33 to 34. And it says this, And when the sixth hour had come, there was darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour. And at the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice, Eloi, Eloi, lema sabachthani, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? So do you see, when Abram is in desperate need of assurance, he gets assurance. And the reason he gets assurance and the reason you and I cannot, we don't have to doubt where there is truth, where you do have hope amidst trials, is because when Christ 
got put under the darkness in Mark 15.33, we see he cried out looking for assurance in his doubts. Why have you forsaken me? But what did he hear? Nothing. He heard nothing so that when you cry out, you can hear something. He got no assurance in his doubts so that when you are doubting, you can have assurance, you see. And that is the gospel in Genesis 15. And if you're in the Bible school, you would have seen it happens in Genesis 1. All through the Old Testament, God is pointing, pointing to the cross, pointing it over and over, saying, guys, stop thinking you have to obey the Ten Commandments. Okay? You do, but you don't. So let me explain it. When God sets out the Ten Commandments, and I'll end with this in, I don't even know what time it is. Let's hope it's okay. When God sets out the Ten Commandments in Exodus and in Deuteronomy, don't just start at, ex- at the first commandment. Read the verse right before the first commandment. Because it's where God tells you what's coming. And he says, I am the Lord your God who brought you up out of Egypt. Therefore, you shall have no other gods but me. Now, do you hear what he's done? I saved you. You already have grace. You don't need to obey to be saved. You've already been saved. But because you've been saved, have no gods other than me. You see how the motivation changes? You cannot sin yourself out of salvation. You can't. Just like you can't behave well to get into salvation. God everywhere is saying, I've done it all. You haven't walked through the aisle. I've done it all for you. Now, once, of course, you believe, there's, you'll, want, you'll want to obey. But that's the motivation, is love, not terror. Okay? And it's all because of Christ who did for you and I on the cross. That's all I've got to say. Let's pray. Father, thank you, Lord. Thank you for the fact that you weave the gospel into every part of Scripture and that we don't have to be manipulating Scripture to find you in the Bible or in the Old Testament and in these stories. You are in it. (laughs) You are there all through it, God, and help us to have the wisdom to see it so that we don't need to uh, be doubting that we've committed some great sin that will cause us to be kicked out of the kingdom. Lord, we didn't do anything to get into the kingdom. You did it all. Thank you for the cross. Thank you for the fact that you didn't smite Abraham who deserved it and all of us as well. And even there I say thank you that you took on the cross and, and turned your head away from your child so that we could have everything. We ask this in Jesus' name.